0: from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we have a special guest agent joining us. She's an agent and she's an author, so it's a double whammy, which is always amazing because somebody like this knows both sides of the industry and you know that that really helps a lot. Rachel McMillan, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's
0: so nice to be here. It's wonderful having you here. You and I have interacted in the capacity of authors before, and now I I get to see you do your thing as an agent. Hurrah. (laughs) Right. So we were chatting, and there's something that you'd actually like to tell our listeners about.
2: Yeah, so I'm working with the Tall Poppy Writers, which is one of the pioneering inaugural group of women writers. They've been around for over a decade and they're they're running a pitch perfect writing contest. This is different from other writing contests you've seen on Twitter or online because it is just about a 250 word hook. It's just about that paragraph that's going to get you past the slush pile and into an agent's inbox. So we've partnered with amazing people like Author Bytes, Jane Friedman, Zibby Owens and a ton of wonderful agents who are going to be our final round judges. And as well as up to $7,000 in prizes of website critiques, etc. You also get your work in front of industry professionals. And I think that's the greatest prize of all. So if you want to enter, we're running it through May the 9th. There's a $25 fee to enter and it's totally worth it because nowadays publishing looks very different. It's no longer an arena where a sample chapter or a writing moment or chapter is going to get you in front of an agent as well as the hook and how you differentiate yourself in an oversaturated market is. So yay for that!
0: That's amazing. And then will the winning ones be made public so that people can learn from ones that they're seeing? Because I think that's a big thing. You know, people like put things together and they, they maybe know they aren't the best, but they're not quite sure like what the amazing ones look
2: like. So will they be able to see that? There will be because there's a people's choice award component. So perhaps the entry didn't get the attention of the agents in a way that an author might have supposed, but there's definitely going to be that opportunity for peer review as well. And so we're hoping to run this contest twice a year and it's an ongoing thing, but it's been really fun to work in that capacity with an amazing group of women writers. Yeah, that sounds absolutely amazing. were these things when I was you know the debut
0: author right (laughs) awesome okay so Rachel let us dive in as we are
3: want to do okay dear agent I am an avid listener of the podcast the shit no one tells you about writing and it has helped me tremendously in my writing journey thank you for all of your hard work I am currently seeking representation for the white deer my upper middle grade fantasy it was recently selected by Tamara Steinbach an editor at Scholastic Canada during a Children's Literary Festival event. Fold, Pitch Perfect, Kid Lit 2022. Tamara expressed interest in working on the manuscript, and I'm currently working on revisions under her guidance. Told, in the third-person limited point of view of two sisters, Michelle and Sophia, my upper-middle-grade novel is complete at 52,000 words. The White Deer is a quieter version of Tristan Strong by Kwame Mbalia meets the magical adventure of Arusha by Roshni Chokshi. It also contains Arusha's sarcastic and sassy humor and Tristan Strong's retelling of non-European folklore in a magic world. The novel begins with the Molik's recent move to Canada. Michelle, 14 years old, wants to help take care of her 10-month-old brother Ali, but her only strength is slaying the fictional dragons in her library books. In contrast, Michelle's younger sister, 13-year-old Sophia, is acing her math tests and dreams of becoming a research scientist at NASA. When Ali is rushed to the hospital for a medical emergency, Michelle and Sophia are left alone in their apartment for the night. They unpack boxes from their move as a distraction and find an old snow globe from Nanijan, their grandmother. Sophia shakes the globe and the apartment magically transforms into a lush forest, transporting the girls into one of Nanijan's bedtime stories. Trapped in a story with a missing queen, a forest haunted by a white deer who turns people into stone, and an Ajdaha terrorizing the sea, Michelle is excited to use swords and her adventurous spirit to overcome these obstacles, whereas Sophia insists that logic and careful planning will lead them home. The white deer is inspired by Pakistani folk tales passed down through generations. As a Pakistani Canadian, my craft is inspired by these beloved stories. I have a bachelor's in English literature from the University of Toronto and a master's in education from Western University. I'm also a member of SCBWI and use their resources to help strengthen my writing and establish connections. I currently live in Toronto, Ontario with my husband and two sons. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for your consideration. She's Agbar.
2: Okay, so there is a lot, a lot here. And I would say almost too much for a one-page query letter. It does a lot well, but this is information that's better, some of it is better held off until the synopsis portion. So what you want to do, is make sure that you're engaging an agent or a prospective editor enough to get them wanting to read more without giving away the entire farm because you want that opportunity to lure them back in. But that being said, there's a lot that this does really well. And so I have prefaced all of my comments on these wonderful queries saying, thank you for letting me look at your proposal. I want to encourage you to remember that every agent is different in this very subjective industry. And my suggestions are specific to what I look for in a successful query, but are by no means the be all and end all. Carly, who's on this podcast, will have a completely different rubric for what she's looking for. And this is a good opportunity for authors to realize that the same subjectivity that agents take into account, you also have to take into account with editors at publishing houses. Because one feedback is going to be like, do this. And another is going to be like, do this. You have to be really specific in what hills you want to die on and which strengths and weaknesses you decide to focus on when you're crafting your query. I wish all of you success with this. It's so smart to include immediate editorial interest, which she does here. We already know now that there's an editor who's not only working with her, but is really interested in the novel. And that shows that there's a serious consideration with perks up an agent's ears. I'm sure you talk about this a lot on the podcast, but something authors sometimes fail to realize is that an agent does not make any money until we sell your book. So... Agents have to eat and make a living too. And oftentimes we don't have the wherewithal to sign authors just because we love the ideas. Sometimes we have to be able to envision in our head the seven or 10 editors we already know we want to send things to. And that is something that you express really well in this query. I know that somebody's interested, which is great. I thought that the comps were great to have front and center. Not every agent likes to see the comps straight up, but I love seeing comparative titles. And one thing to remember is that I use your comps through the selling process. So when I see great comps, they're going to follow the trajectory of your query until it makes it hopefully to a publication board at a publisher because it's the sales and marketing people who are going to use these comps to say, okay, we can express interest in this because it not only fits a gap in the industry, but it also has sales potential based on these titles or examples of media. I love seeing like Stranger Things meets Bambi, you know, anything that positions it in the reader's mind. Strong hook, compelling hook. I loved it. I do think that, writers should default to assuming that not everybody knows the acronyms that you know. So I think that you have to provide the information that probably might seem secondhand to you, but assume that we don't know it. So I think it's great that you're involved in SCBWI, I didn't know what that was. I had to look at it. And I would say that I would make sure that you spend more time speaking about how that informs your writing career. And I think that this is something I will always say, it's really important more than your credentials at a school, unless you're writing nonfiction, more than your bachelor degree, your master's degree. I would rather see that time used for how to find you online and on social media. Because some sort of internet presence is going to be absolutely crucial to any author right now. And the first thing I do when I look at a query is actually Google the author. I need to make sure that there's something there that you're at least growing your platform or you're at least trying something out. So that was very well, (laughs) much of a ramble, but I hope that that helps. That's what I had to say about the query. Amazing.
0: For our listeners, remember what Rachel's saying is not that you need to have a million followers on social media, just that you're on it, you know how to use it so that when the time comes and your book is out there in the world you know, you are already knowing how to reach and engage with your readers, because this is something that's so important these days. Readers want to reach out to authors. And if you have absolutely no social media platform, and you're not engaging with anyone at all, that can definitely be a problem. But
2: don't feel like you now have to go out and get your 10 no. followers and I want to preface this, I am not well educated in middle grade fiction at all. I don't represent it. And I don't have kids. So I don't really read it. It's been a while. So I looked at this just as best as I could, trusting that if someone from Scholastic is working on it as well, then we know that there's something awesome happening here. And it just sets up Michelle's life at the end of the week. We find her in school. We learn that she's a bit of an outlier with her classmates. We learn that she is imaginative. It doesn't really propel us that far into the story, but it does set up what a typical waiting for the bell moment would be for a young woman of her age. And I really thought that she established the school experience around a very real and relatable expectation of the end of the school day and how she set up the character's contrast to the other classmates, which is something that's probably a specific experience for many people who don't quite feel that they fit into a classroom experience. We all know how <laughs> how typical that can be. And then the other thing I did in the comments was just if I really like a moment of imagery or alliteration or consonants the confetti speckled wrapping paper and colorful balloons i usually just highlight that i loved it like love fabulous imagery so that's kind of what i had to say about this specific query and i hope it ends up on bookshelves
0: soon <laughs> yeah that's amazing and for our ko subscribers you'll get to see this we'll be sharing the submission and rachel's notes so so you'll be able to see for yourself exactly what rachel's referring to thank you so much for that rachel okay let's go to the next one
2: Okay, and please go and look at this online so you can see the actual spelling of these words and names that I am going to pronounce quite terribly. So I might just skip over some of them in order to not do any injustice, but... Excerpt from debut novel. I am writing to submit an excerpt from my novel, The Poet's Wife, for your consideration for an upcoming episode of the podcast. The Poet's Wife is a work of literary fiction, a multi generational migration story set in Syria, Greece, and Canada, with echoes of Omar El Akkad's Such Strange Paradise. The novel follows the transatlantic crossing of a young man fleeing his abusive father and mandatory military service. His story is elaborated by weaving together the narratives of the women in his life, each of whom also overcome personal hardship to seek a new beginning, arriving at their destination with little more than hope for a better future. I am not represented by an agent, and at 52, I am an emerging writer, not yet published in book form. I am a civil servant in Ottawa, where I participate in a writing group and work with a mentor, the award-winning poet and novelist Rhonda Douglas. I am a member of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and I also attended a literary arts Program for Emerging Writers at the Banff Center. Writing with style in 2014, led by Elizabeth Phillips with Trevor Harriet. I write fiction, poetry, and a blog, Sunday in Ontario, which explores family, self, and community. In addition to this novel, I am working on a collection of short stories, one of which received an honorable mention in the 2022 Gritlit Writing Contest. A short piece of memoir was shortlisted for the 2022 International Amy mccray Award for Memoir. The poet's wife explores cross-cultural and family dynamics of the immigrant experience as people navigate the push and pull of adventure, opportunity, safety, and what it means to be home. The characters seek to establish and assert their identity as their context shift around them. I am in the process of querying agents and publishers and would welcome any feedback from Carly, Cece, or a guest agent. I thank you in advance for your consideration. Okay, so... Again, as I say, I am doing this from what I look for in hopes of helping you a little bit, but every agent is going to want to see something a little bit different. One thing that I should say is that make sure when you're querying agents, to really go through their website for their guidelines and what they want. Pitching to an agent is like a job interview. Treat it like a resume. Treat it as you would anything. I judge how you take instructions in a pitch or a query as determining how you will be when we work together with a publisher. So if somebody, and I'm not speaking to this query specifically, this one's great, but I just thought it was a good transitional moment to mention that if someone queries me on Twitter DM or my personal email, if they get it somehow, or Instagram direct messenger or LinkedIn or Goodreads, I know that they're not ready professionally to be in collaboration with me because agents have to have a reputation with editors and with publishing houses, and this is a way that you prove that you're professional. So with that in mind, this is an awesome query. It sets the story with fantastic grounding as well as a firm understanding of its genre and place. I would add a few more comp titles, comparative titles, focusing especially on best-selling literary fiction books so that the prospective agent and editor has a surefire way to sell it to their publishing committee and board. Look at this document as a business or sales document, like a resume. We want you to focus on what you have accomplished and not necessarily what you haven't yet. So sell who you are. Not, I'm not published yet. I'm emerging I would focus more on, you've accomplished these things in these writers' contests. You have accomplished these things by going to BAMP and doing this cool stuff. So I think that mentioning your credentials is how you're going to place yourself in the agent's mind, rather than mentioning what you're not yet. I think that, again, if possible great to give a literary agent or editor a sense of your online platform because it's so key to a book's success and consideration and the query ends with the poet's wife explores you know she goes into her bio and then goes back to the book exploring cross-cultural and family dynamics and I would move that to the very top because that's your elevator pitch this is why this book is something that we should want to pick up and want to read more of she mentions the character seek to establish and assert their identity as their context shift around them. I think that some of this wording is a little bit vague. You want your agent and editor to be able to understand exactly what you're going for. Remember that when you send this, this is what we call to make a proposal that we submit to editors. And you should know that in a publishing board, which is the very last decision that decides whether or not you are going to get an offer for a contract, the majority of people around that table in the board meeting will never read your writing. So they will be busy doing their life, and then five minutes before a meeting, they'll just sift through the folder of all the pitches that editors are submitting for that day's publishing board and it's really important to give them absolutely every bit of information possible so that there's no one second guessing so if you can do that up front and be as clear as possible that really helps us and the book opens and one of the things this does well the poet's wife is that there's a very poetic resonance to the writing which I thought was awesome. She includes little moments of imaginative poetry that really sets up the main character's life, a place where his classmates slayed Turks and Germans, the the imaginative life of a little boy, but also the abuse that he goes under, the explanation of the military being something that is mandatory, and then of course his eventual decision to leave his family and his father. There is great imagery here but I did find that lots of potential here, some lovely touches of character development and unique setting, wonderful poetic resonance. I do wonder if it could cut back a bit of the creative language in order to establish a sense of immediacy and a rhythm of pacing that allows us to get more quickly into the main characters leaving. I also would have liked to have seen a little bit more context as to his abuse and why, and I just wanted to say assume your reader knows absolutely nothing about any of the conflicts that your characters are going through and if you can find a way to ground us in the story by giving us a bit of a parallel or an example of something from our world that might help us establish an immediate kinship with this character i think that would be awesome but there's some amazing potential and this was one query where i could tell that there had been some beta readers and some people who had definitely because it's a collab- of community. And I can usually tell when authors have had people look over it and really worked at tightening and strengthening their work. So that's what I had to say about that one.
0: Okay. So I've just looked it up just to make sure that we know how to pronounce this character's name. And it's oh, Yurgos. Yurgos.
2: Okay. Yurgos. So, Thank
0: you. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Okay. Awesome, Rach. Thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. I know that Carly and Cece in terms of that plot paragraph would have said they definitely wanted more specificity there, you know, that it's a little bit too vague. So definitely for this author lean into giving us more specifics there in terms of the, the plot paragraph. It's so difficult when it's a multi-generational novel. It's like so, so tough. And, and, you know, in that instance, I always say go look at things like homegoing by your Jesse look at things that are multi-generational novels look at their blurb copy and kind of see how they manage to kind of fit that all in there but but with that kind of thing it really is tough right okay so
2: we are now going to the next query letter yes this is a fun one. I am delighted to introduce The Mermaid of Talcoster Hall, an 88,000-word contemporary fantasy novel with elements of women's fiction. It combines the dry humor and magical themes of Ink and Sigil, I believe that's how you say that, with the witty dialogue and mother-daughter relationship of again Rachel, alongside the eerie vibes and mermaid-human connection of The Shape of Water. Its cozy gothic tone will appeal to fans of Shanna Swensden's Enchanted Ink series, who enjoy women undertaking fantasy adventures in the real world. A cocktail waitress inherits more than a crumbling mansion when she discovers her great uncle created mermaids to sell on the dark web, with one still waiting in the cellar to be sold or saved. Stubborn and sassy, Lucinda intends to avoid being the responsible adult her family expects stay in her apathetic life and enjoy a glass of whiskey along the way that changes when her overbearing mother calls asking lucinda to assist her with clearing out the mansion bequeathed by her scientist great uncle lucinda agrees but strapped for cash Caveats her help by demanding the pick of the treasure in the house, a notion quickly squashed when the family's inheritance turns out to be more Hell Hall than Pemberley. When Lucinda finds a secret lab with an intelligent mermaid imprisoned, she befriends the mermaid and promises to help her. Teaming up with her great uncle's gorgeous assistant and her genius estranged sister, they discover the mermaid is up for sale to the highest bidder. With the clock ticking on her great uncle's terrible plan, and with the only way to stop the auction carried, with With him to his grave, Lucinda must work with her family to prove she isn't the black sheep she always tried to be, or else the mermaid's freedom will be lost. I have a degree in business and economics and three small children. When I'm not writing away my free time or listening to writer podcasts, I enjoy baking, running, and beta reading for my writing critique group. I'm a winner of the fall writing frenzy in 2021 and received honorable mention in 2022 and about to start the shit no one tells you about writing 10 week writing course. I've received professional development in editing and editing coaching. So this is a really cool one that is just so unique and (laughs) I just loved it. Thanks for letting me look at this. I think that with comparative titles, you want to include the author, the publisher, and the year, because we want to keep it contemporary. I would say that the Shanna Swensden series, which is fantastic, is probably too dated at this point, unless it's really, really essential to establishing the comparative titles that you're housing your idea in. It's best to do something within the past two to five years, closer to the two, and better if it's a great seller not everyone will have your point of reference so i would just err on having more information there i do think that your book which is a moonshine manor would have been a great comp for this one actually so throw that one in this the hook line was strong i did chuckle at hell hall meets pemberley but remember that not everybody's going to get points of references so just use as much context as possible this idea is really within the zeitgeist of what's happening in the industry right now. There's a lot of catnip here and I thought that she did a really good job of showing the personality of the book. I did find that it might have just been a little bit too long, but all of the ingredients are there for something that most agents would want to take a look at. And when we have the opening chapters here, it just sets up Lucinda, who's a very who's couched in a very voicey narration and i i found her quite charming and one of the things that this did well even though we just kind of set up lucinda's life and then she brings lucinda's mother in and we get the friction of that relationship one of the things that's very hard to do is use your exposition to establish character voice because often it's just plot drop central and i thought that this Query did a great job of getting us into Lucinda's head, not only in terms of what she's thinking and how she relates to the world, but also this quippy, quirky voice internally and externally in dialogue that we're going to be following throughout the gradual unraveling of this really cool story so with this the comments I had were just like great line this is fun I did find that sometimes it had the propensity to just be a little bit too much I would say that sometimes your really zingy lines are going to pack more of a punch if there's fewer of them so I did find that this one had the tendency to have a bit of what I call overwriting you have such a natural talent that I don't think you need to try as hard as you did to get us to like her. She she is quite delightful on her own. So that's what I had to say about that one. Thank you. Okay, and what was in the opening pages and your, your take on them? I just thought it's the opening pages were fabulous because they just took us into Lucinda's life. We meet her mother. We get just that she's in the middle of this incredible incredible moment in her life she's a little bit lonely she doesn't quite know what she's doing and it really is just establishing the relationship with lucinda and her mother as well as lucinda so not a lot of plot stuff happening but that's okay because it's character stuff and in this world that's going to be more important but it could have been a little bit shorter terms of that i want to get right to the mermaid so give me mermaid (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 get get the other stuff. give us the mermaid and it's really hard with writing samples because often people want to see one chapter or two chapters so not everybody will say this and not every contest will apply this but if there's an opportunity to submit a writing sample that isn't necessarily chapter one, that can often be awesome because oftentimes chapter one is the exposition of the story. And sometimes you just want to get right into the meat of it. That makes us want to go back. So depending on what it is, if there's an opportunity to get us a little bit down the road, that can sometimes help.
0: Yeah. And so that's very specifically for the kind of context that just want to see a sample of your yeah. writing, but certainly with the query it needs needs to be that opening it needs
2: to be the first yeah and they're so hard opening chapters are the hardest
0: yeah and I also think that sometimes if you're tempted to say well I'm not going to show you my opening chapter because that actually isn't the best one the best one is chapter two then maybe consider starting with chapter two you know if that is all somebody's going to read and you're like well that isn't the best stuff how can you make that that the absolute best stuff that
2: you're not going oh well my chapter two is better than my chapter if you're not fond of it Other people won't. One thing that I do that I actually took from university is uh, in my writing life, I'll often write chapter one later, just how I used to write the thesis after I did these long meandering thoughts on Charlotte Bronte's Viet, then I would go back. And so if you're finding it difficult to open, you do not have to write chronologically. You can go back when you're in the voice, when you're in the mood and just have a stronger opening that way.
0: Yeah, I find that openings are rewritten like 95% of the time anyway, and written and rewritten and rewritten. And I've said before on the podcast that when I, what I generally consider to be my chapter one, usually ends up being chapter eight in the, final draft of the book Mm -hmm. so you know you can go back or you can shoot forward it's not to say that because that's
2: where you began that that's how it has to stay okay our last one Dear Agent, I hope you'll consider Redacted, we don't have the title here, a 135,000-word young adult fantasy retelling of the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale The Traveling Companion. This YA fairy tale retelling with heart will appeal to fans of Six Crimson Cranes by Elizabeth Lim and Cinder by Marissa Mayer with a hint of found family a la Six of Crows by Leigh Bardugo, the Shadow and Bone author. Will has always taught to pay attention to his dreams. He was raised by two self-proclaimed romantics, after all, who taught him that the kingdom of Sendero once knew magic, that the wind told stories, and most importantly, that dreams have power on the night a loved one dies. And sure enough, on the night of his father's death, Will is visited by a peculiar dream indeed. He sees a girl trapped in a tower and a city contained in a dome of stained glass. Will has a choice to face- find the girl and discover the meaning behind his dreams or take up his responsibility as the resident chicken farmer of his rather closed-minded village and so, with nothing but his dog and a healthy dose of optimism and perhaps a dash of naivete, Will embarks on a journey across lands that once knew magic but have long since forgotten it with the help of the eclectic misfits he meets along the way including a sword-wielding tavern maid and a nomad who never seems to part with his comically large backpack Will uncovers the identity of the woman in his literal dreams, who just so happens to be the queen of Sandera, all while navigating his own personal quest to discover his parents' beliefs for himself he ultimately finds himself at the very center of a deadly test to break the queen's curse. Will must win or risk becoming a skeleton in her garden of dead suitors, not to mention losing the kingdom to the rule of a particularly devious species of mythical beasts. I'm a senior content writer in the tech industry, where I bring brand voices to life with vibrant, punchy copy. That's going to help you with your writing career. I graduated from Wilfrid Laurie University with a BA in film studies. I love to bring my background in screenwriting and film theory to the stories I write. I think that this is a perfect example of someone whose day job is kind of influencing their book because there's a very cinematic resonance to this. I did have some comments about this. I thought the comps were great, and they're, you know, and I've said this already, they're the Ammo that we use in order to get editor and committee interests. So I thought they were great. They are good selling comps. They're stuff that people who are looking for YA will know. I want to spend a moment to talk about how you really need to know the word count expectations for your genre. Something that writers don't always know is that everything from the price of your book to the printing cost to the due date is all based on how many words you're writing. In your contract, it will specify how many words your book is. It's a contract for a 100,000-word book by Rachel McMillan because it also pays into your advance. So it's really, really important. And in YA, you can get away in fantasy with a 135,000-word book. But if you pitch me and query me a romantic comedy that's 135,000 words, that doesn't work. I did find that this, even though you're allowed to do it and it allocates for world building, I really did find that this word count was a little bit high. I think that your voice comes across into the query, but I would love for you to play a little bit more into the Once Upon a Time quite feel i found that there was a lot of information dumping that took us from will back to the curse back to the magic and i know that it's fantasy so you have to get a lot of that on the page but i found that if you can just leave us with a little bit more to want to read further i thought that would have helped that query a lot because there's a lot going on here your voice comes through it's awesome i think this is a little too much the lands she she You know, the lands that once knew magic but have long since forgotten it is a great vague and alluring line that she ends with. And I think that that would be a great, instead of going more into the different character specifics, I would end there. It's like, where did the magic go? I want to know. And the opening is real. oh, and I had written, (laughs) this checks out. I can tell right from the proposal that you are a film studies person. Um, And put the title up near the genre and word count. Um, She has a title that I think actually could have been helpful if it was a little bit shorter. I think that one of these one-word titles is sometimes more alluring. She had said redacted, so I didn't know if she wanted me to say it aloud, but you'll see it in the Kofi. All right, so... One of the things that our discussion about first chapters really feeds into here is that her first chapter is a prologue. And if you talk to Carly or Cece or any different agent and editor, they're going to have a different opinion about prologues. I personally wonder if they're not needed. Sometimes they read like an exercise in the writer establishing the world and it's more helpful for the writer than the actual reader. You established Will is such a great guy such a great character and in this writing sample we don't meet him until the very end it's all about the nameless queen and setting up this entire world building it's really beautifully written with some fabulous imagery a lot of tree imagery fewer trees in the forest (laughs) because you do it well but i i did write that I see that your word count is as high as it is, and I think that's functional for the genre, but even in the prologue, I question whether it needs to be, because this opening has a lot of description and a little bit of meandering that I would cut away. I like the subtle, vague way you establish the girl and the mythos of your setting, the tree, her being a queen, her feeling lost, the hood and the shadows. But there is just too much of it. I think if there's a possibility of weaving the most integral parts of this into a much shorter opening that isn't so much a prologue as a piece of narrative that contextualizes the story and allows us to get more quickly into the action. So it does open with setting up the forest, this nameless queen, and having a real sense of what we're going to get in terms of the magic of this story. And then it ends with us finally being introduced to the hero, Will, who's going to be engaged and embroiled in this entire world. And I, she sets up the characters so well in her descriptions that I wanted to see more of them instead of this very vague, descriptive chapter. So that was what was in the... The opening there, but it was, it was, they were all really good. This, this sounds like it has a lot of potential
0: amazing
2: rachel thank you
0: so so much for joining us <laughs> you managed to get it on time it was a lot you had to cover like, <laughs> and uh and and you managed to get through it all remember for our kofi supporters you can go there and see rachel's mm-hmm. comments and sometimes it's more helpful you know reading something to learn than just listening to it i know that i i always learn best when i'm looking at actual examples of things so rachel thank you so much for oh, our you're listeners so welcome Rachel is also a phenomenal author, so please go out. We're going to link to some of her books on our bookshop.org affiliate page and, uh, and have a look at, at those there. And, Rachel, we hope to have you back again.
4: Thank you very much. rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today.
1: Hi everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8pm via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is Today's guest is the author of You, Hidden Bodies,
0: Providence, You Love Me, and Numerous Short Stories. Her work has been translated into a multitude of languages and inspired a television series adaptation of You currently on Netflix. She graduated from Brown University and previously worked as a pop culture journalist for Entertainment Weekly and a TV writer for Seventh Heaven and The Secret Life of the American Teenager. She grew up on Cape Cod, Massachusetts and now lives in Los Angeles. It's my pleasure to welcome Caroline Kepnes. Caroline, welcome to the show.
5: Hello, Bianca. Thank you for having me.
0: It is so wonderful to have you here. I've been a fan for years. In fact, it was about 14 years ago, I worked with a very charming serial killer in South Africa, and I ended up adopting his cat when he was finally arrested. So, it is a crazy story. We won't talk about it now because I want to focus on you. But this is to say that these kinds of charming serial killers are out there. And from when I read You, I was just like, oh my God, this is giving me goosebumps how scarily similar a lot of these things are. So, Right, so we're gonna ah. we we're gonna dive straight in here. So in high school, you you said in interviews, your guidance counselor gave you the triarchic theory of intelligence test. And based on that result, you got to go to Yale for the summer on a scholarship to study case files of abnormal people and criminals. And you loved that so much that when you got to college, you designed your own major, Notions of Normalcy in American Culture, which is pretty genius because it allowed you to study psychology and also creative writing. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
5: What strikes me first is that it all sounds so smooth and intentional when you say it. When really like like that program was absolute wonderful in high school with you know the case files and I loved that. And I did like writing short stories. And I went to college and I was just laughing with this with my freshman roommate the other day about this. We were both like very writer people, like artsy people and for whatever reason we get to Brown and it's so liberal arts but we both decide that we're going to be doctors. <laughs> I took neuroscience and I I just didn't get it. And I remember this TA, like, if you don't get this, you can't go on. And I couldn't let go of that. So I began then thinking, okay, English, but I didn't want to do Beowulf. It was like every major had some aspect of it that I didn't want to do. And the clock was ticking over the years. So I kind of got cornered. After and I'd done an independent study where I got to go to Bradley Hospital, which was a place for children with problems, and study and help those kids, and then write about that, and also writing about VCRs and watching cartoons on repeat, and just like t- taking all these things together. So it grew out of that, but it was a bumpy road, and I did not have some like grand picture inside when I started. It was like I can't understand the sodium part of the human brain. <laughs>
0: The, the thing that i could relate to here is i've always been fascinated by people what makes them tick why they do things and I also thought I wanted to become a psychologist. And my guidance counselor made me go interview a psychologist and take all these notes to decide if that's what I wanted to do. And then I was like, oh, hell no. I can't sit and listen to people and all their bloody problems. I was just like, I just want to tell you what to do to fix your problems. And <laughs> I don't have the patience to listen to that shit for hours on end, right?
5: Yeah, and you don't get to make stuff up. Like, I feel like I naturally just do that. And I feel like that's where telling stories comes from. And where in journalism especially, I was like, oh, I just want to like – can I just make up the rest of it? No, you can't. And that's for only in writing. Do you are you allowed to like take someone's like make someone up, take their life make it your how you want it to be? Yes.
0: Right, and that's why writing is so amazing. We get to make shit up for a living. Yes. <laughs> it's it's, it's that's, fucking good. that's amazing. Okay, so so to talk about Joe, here is the thing that has bugged me and I know everyone t- says this to you but for our listeners, we're going to have to go through it, right? So here's the thing. There are times that he is so reasonable and, and you sit there and you're like nodding along and you're like, yeah, Joe, yeah, hundred percent agree with you. These kinds of people are bullshit. These kinds of people are assholes. And he's, there's times he's so hugely insightful. Like he's the kind of guy that he studies people, and he can infer all kinds of things from just the most simplest of his observations. What he can deduce from that sometimes is mind-blowing. So I think in another life, if Joe had had a different childhood, a different upbringing, perhaps, he could have been an esteemed criminologist in the behavioral science unit for the FBI, right? Yep. But then he's so quick to blame other people for his problems and for his own treatment of them and why he's torturing them and, and killing them. And, and then you sit there and you're like, whoa, Joe, no, 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 no. We've gone out of this reasoning moment here. So he's such a fascinating contradiction. Now, when you first started writing this, how did you get that balance right? Was it trial and error? Were you just able to get in this guy's head and, and you just got it right straight out the gate?
5: I rewrote that first chapter, like, so much to the point where I had it memorized, where you know the thing when you're writing so much that you close your eyes to go to sleep and you dream about the pages and everything's spelled wrong and everything's terrible. And I went through so many processes with it. And finding him, I feel like that devil is in the details thing, like getting that first conversation with Beck Down made me feel like, okay, I am slowing it down, bringing myself into his head so that I feel every second of what it's like to be him. And like you said, to benefit from being the type of guy who knows how to whisper and think, say your thoughts out loud and give you that little like Muppets in the back vibe of conspiring. But then you see him like kind of becoming undone and you start to get the feeling that like this conversation matters a lot to him, maybe a little too much. And then as I wrote, like coming back to this thing of like the Achilles heel with him, like he just can't blame himself for anything. And if he does for a second, he's got to work himself out of that, like immediately. And the way he's also always setting other people up to fail, like just in case everything goes well. I, as I rewrote that first chapter, it kind of kept occurring to me. Oh, right. These, this thing in him that like will enable him to feel like all of humanity is over here. And this person is with me for a minute. But the minute they fuck with me, they're back with the others. And in that way, like that's where in that book, like I remember getting to the part where he sees her like he's the zookeeper. And it was like, yes, like you like you don't know that you're basically auditioning to be his zookeeper with him. And by the time, you know, too late. And I've always I mean, I've always loved that, like people that can be charismatic who can do that sort of thing and they know how to act like they know how to seem normal and they are part normal and they kind of. But for them, it's kind of like play acting a little bit. And I feel like I liked getting to know him and thinking like slowing down for me, like writing is addictive for me and I write fast and a lot. But then being like, wait a minute, like he has been in this bookstore every day for years. He grew up in here. So many girls have walked in and they always don't think that they're walking into his life. So he is on his turf. This is his place. When that doorbell rings, he thinks that person belongs to him. And that helped me a lot because I like just geographically, when the geography matches the mental illness, but like, imagine if you walked into a, yeah, a store and thought like, yeah, this is, I I am no longer like my own person. I'm not allowed to leave. I'm not allowed to not buy anything. Like if he so chooses you. But then at the same time, the way that no one, like we're all told, especially as women, like you want someone to tell you, you're the only one, you know, you're it, you're better than everyone. And all of that language is both romantic and poisonous. And
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so we, we're going to talk about how you've turned that trope around, which I absolutely love. But what you've said now sparked something off for me is in terms of setting. Reading Joe, there's a claustrophobia you get because you are so in his head. And that's something you've you've done very, very intentionally because it's like he can't escape his own damn head. So we aren't going to escape his head either. Right. So you you are making the reader do a ton of heavy lifting in terms of that claustrophobia. But even more than that, we say on the podcast setting needs to be so intentional. You, you mm-hmm. can't just base a scene or a story randomly somewhere because that's kind of a setting you like. And what you've just said now speaks to the intentionality of you placing Beck there and placing Joe there in terms of that setting because it is his turf
5: yes, I, th- I mean, I remember being in college in a great fiction writing workshop with Meredith Steinbeck, and she gave us this book about writing, and there was a line in there about atmosphere and the importance of it, and I remember underlining that, like, yes, like getting that that really made sense to me as a reader and a writer as something that like I was both drawn to but aware of when I was kind of trying to skip that step or thinking I'll come back to it and for me, like that's atmosphere is such a drive for me to to write, and I love putting that all together and it's I feel like those are those parts of writing were in your complete control and other parts where you feel like you're in flow and it's magic but those control parts I feel like are very important and you save yourself a lot of work if you kind of think it through and also remember that the story started before you came along and give yourself time to like imagine like So this person works here. Why? What has this been like for them? How is this like, what are the close calls? What are all the stuff that like doesn't wind up in the book, but it does contribute to the atmosphere in the smallest ways.
0: And there's also claustrophobia that you bring to the story in terms of his stalking when it comes to social media, because there's times that Joe is out in the world, he's interacting with other people. But then you you bring it super close again, because what he has control over is what he's researching on the web, is what he's finding in someone's social media. And that has like this very claustrophobic quality to it as well, because the way he pays attention to that, like he, in a way, the rest of us are, okay, we're skimming, we're skimming, swipe, swipe, skim, scroll, whatever, as you're seeing each image. But that's not how it is for Joe. Each image gives him more information about this person's life, which lets him into their psyche, which allows him to manipulate them in certain ways.
5: Yes. I mean, in that way, I'm a child of the 80s. So I grew up being afraid of strangers and being told that like there's nothing worse you can do than like take something from a stranger, let a stranger make you happy or involve themselves in your life. And that's where social media as it started to come around in like the 2010s especially, I was just starting to freak me out and how I just felt uncomfortable. And I liked also seeing how it isn't about age. Like there were some people younger than me that had hesitation toward it. There are people who it was totally new to them but were on there completely at ease as if they'd grown up tweeting and it was like a natural way for them to express themselves. And for me, like Joe also started with that awful voice in your head when you sometimes look at things you've done and taking that voice and imagining someone who has that critical eye that I feel like we can bring to ourselves in a vicious way when we're down on ourselves, but he never brings it to himself and he brings it on others. And he zooms in on that picture, like he will find the flaw that you usually think of something you find in yourself. And that's where especially writing this as a woman, I feel like it's part of what my worst fear And the worst thought about this guy like just looking closely and finding flaw everywhere the way that his intention changes. Like if you upset him, suddenly he's going to go back and have a whole list of things
0: that were wrong. But besides that he zones in on the floor, what you also give him and that makes him interesting is there's a kind of graciousness there. There are things that these women do that we as the reader are kind of judging them and he kind of will frame it in this endearing light. He's like, oh, that's just how you are because you're a bit insecure and you haven't grown into your confidence yet, et cetera, et cetera. But then he always links that to himself. I will be the one who will help you become more confident so that you don't do these silly little quirky things, right?
5: Oh, yes. That was what was so exciting about getting to write this new book and have him deal with another woman writer again. And like, slowly kind of realize, oh, maybe Joe being Joe, it isn't the best thing in the world for him to put himself out there. Like, he doesn't want anyone to be able to criticize him. So just projecting all of his insecurity, all of his ego onto her and making himself her champion. Like, I love the way he does that because on the one hand, it's another one of those romantic things that like, oh, he cares about her. He wants her to write. He's her biggest cheerleader. What if she doesn't do what he says? And the minute that she kind of toots her own horn or makes decisions about her own career, uh uh-oh, like...
0: Yeah, very much so. And for our listeners, Joe, he's doing this kind of Harvard fellowship, this writing fellowship. This is what the story's about. And the whole time I was waiting for Joe's work to be critiqued, because this is the thing. It's to put yourself out there to be so vulnerable as a writer, and then to get that kind of critique, not everyone can handle it. I've critiqued the work of people who've been like, They've sent me a 12-page response to my critique telling me why I'm wrong, um, yes. and which I imagine Joe doing as well, and you made us wait a, quite a while for Joe's work to be looked at in any kind of way, which was absolutely awesome. Let's talk a bit about, you had a lot of fun with these writers in this fellowship. My God, you had so much fun, and I was killing myself laughing because there were so many times that I've been in a writing class where I've been like, oh, this person is exactly like this person that I was in a writing class with because there can be there can be so much pretension at at this level of writing yes but
5: then so much stress like that's where it was fun to take joe's view on that because I agree with you but you've had that thing too where I've walked out of a class like what the fuck did I just say like that wasn't me and you want to run back and be like everyone I'm not a pretentious asshole that was just like a reaction Uh, I felt vulnerable like I whether it's good or bad and I like the way that in those atmospheres also like you're so exposed and so vulnerable so it was so exciting to put joe in there and the one thing i knew going in like no this motherfucker ain't gonna be workshopped right like he's gonna that's where he is not that he is just not going to allow that to happen like in a way there's almost nothing worse that could ever happen to him because he feels like it's his pure self
0: and and he believes everything he's written is absolutely amazing and yeah, it was it was just a lot of that was was hilarious. So how difficult is it being in his head when you're writing? In, because I know you as the author have to experience certain things to elicit those emotions in your reader. So if you want your reader to be feeling claustrophobic and uncomfortable, you sure as hell are feeling claustrophobic and uncomfortable. Do you feel like you good. need you need to take a shower after writing Joe every day, or is it now something that you can climb into and out of quite easily?
5: It's funny. You know, I just watched this movie Breakdown, this Kurt Russell movie. And I was on the IMDb, like the random facts. I love that movie. But he said that it was a hard movie to do because he was always in this state of anxiety because the character is always in this state of anxiety. And I was like, yes. Like, and that's where it's been now 10 years. And I feel like it's on the one hand, it's given me something to do with my own anxiety. On the other hand, it's just a weird way to like go into the day, like planning to be a nervous, you know, nervous, tense, anxious wreck. And I remember when I was writing the first book, I was in a coffee shop and I would get like really get sucked in there, like in, in the trance of like trying to find the voice. And it was a physical scene. And that was my, I feel like action is a whole other su- subject, but writing action can just be a little stressful. And I felt like I wasn't getting it. And I thought, well, yeah, I've never, I've never beaten anyone up. You know, I've never attacked anyone. i was sitting there and I, I'm trying to imagine like. I'm doing an arm gesture right now, like throwing something at someone. And then I get, I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, cause it was something in the, the elbow or like the physical stress. And I get that weird feeling. And one of the guy working there comes up with this shit eating grin. And I'm like, oh my God. And he's like, it's okay. <laughs> I had thrown my cup at the wall. And I was like, yeah, I, that was total like asshole move. And he's like, we're just excited about this book. Like you, you know, you and do thank you. God it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't full. It was like just a little leftover ice, but you know, I, it's like that. And it's very like, consuming and kind of like I always think of like giving someone the middle finger like if you gave someone the finger 5,000 times a day that's what it's like to write Joe all day and that's where I like rewriting so much because once you have like that draft or that second draft and it comes into the surgery the line edits that's where I can do what you just said of like kind of wake up like a proper adult and be like okay I'm gonna address this scene.
0: I love what you said now about Doing the motion to imagine it. Because I say to my creative writing students, when writing scenes of action, when writing physicality, actually act it out or look up that kind of action on YouTube or film yourself doing this thing so that it makes it easier to write it. So, for example, I wrote a scene of somebody being tied up and this woman shoves this guy's tie, his own tie, in his mouth and... Mm. I was struggling to write it. So I made my poor husband sit there so I could tie him up and shove this thing in his mouth. Now, let me tell you, it was a lot of fun. It was very cathartic. Oh, I like
5: your marriage. That's a good one.
0: (laughs) I think if anyone walked in, they would have thought we'd really kinky. But my poor husband's just sitting there and he's like, okay, cool. We're going to go through this. But it was so helpful. And, you know, with a lot of these things, like if you haven't strangled someone, if you haven't stabbed someone, if you haven't, you know, whatever, if you can, if you can't watch that, you know, being acted out in a movie or whatever, get a friend, act it out, film yourself doing it so that you can see the order in which the motions happen, where one hand might be, etc.
5: Yes. And then allow it to be almost like one, you know, those recipe videos where it's the bird's eye view and it's like, oh, the cup automatically has a quarter cup of blueberries in there. And the still and the frame changes, and then there's everything's all measured out. It's like that's step one of knowing what it is, knowing how it feels for you, and then the breath of like, okay, how does it feel for this character? Because if you're dealing with someone who this is just what they do, and they have that sociopathic, psychopathic tendency, they're not going to react like you when they've done something. And then to me coming back around to, no, but they're human and it depends on the dynamic there. But it's like, if you do that physical work first, it makes all of that easier. And like the blueberries are measured. Yeah.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And then you also realize that the way you were writing the scene, you would have required an extra hand to be (laughs) able to reach for the rope while grabbing someone and touching something else. So, So that's always interesting. In terms of beta readers, Caroline, early on, did you have people looking at those early chapters? Because something we discuss a lot on the podcast and something I've struggled with is society's bloody insistence that they want their characters to be likable. And especially when it comes to women characters. God forbid Mm. she's slightly too ambitious or a bit too much of a bitch or too much of this or whatever. Then you get beta readers, you get agents, you get editors being like, oh, I didn't connect with this character. I didn't like them. So were you getting that at all in the early drafts and you were just like, to hell with all of you. This is my vision. Or were you not having people read it early on? Or were you getting people who read it early on who just got it?
5: I was selective with who read it. And first of all, like I I hear you so loud. May Cobb has a book coming out called An Unlikable Woman. (laughs) And I'm just like, give this to me. And I, I'm, I'm. it's out this summer. And I've just been like, it makes me able to picture the summer of sitting on a beach reading about an unlikable woman. Like yeah.
0: everything Mae yeah. Cobb writes is amazing because she does unlikable her. woman. Amazing. Yeah.
5: Yes. And so it, I was selective with who read it, like my mom and my aunts read it. And I felt, and I would send them chapters together and they're her sisters. And it was like, because they have that dynamic as sisters and they were reading at the same time, I feel like they were just all very receptive in a way that like bringing it out into the world, there might've been that pushback of like, Hey, this Beck is, you know, do you really think this is people? And, and I've kind of kept it that way for years where I don't like to get a lot of external feedback I'm also someone who like manically rewrites. So like my beta readers now, like my friends, they can look at their email and there will be like 14 emails where I'm like, read this version. No, that one. No, this one. No, that one. And and I'm like, I just can't. Yeah. But I, I, I believe, I don't know about you, but like for me, they know this, like to me, hitting send and knowing someone you like and trust is going to read it is often like opens these gates of like, wait a minute. I know what I think I said and I didn't say it. Or like, I know what I, yes, what's in there. But I feel like it's, if you're going to write about people who are unlikable, you got to show it to people who are geared up to read about people who are unlikable. Because otherwise, there's going to be that pushback from everyone. And I think also kind of understand why that's interesting to you. Like, to me, it just comes as second nature. Like, I like that, like, people who are flawed. And I like that area where, like, sometimes the one who survives isn't the one who, necessarily deserves to survive like that was all for me in the beginning my father died of cancer and joe on some level was cancer the element that kills and it makes me mad when people would call it a battle because if you get diagnosed too late and it's stage four it's not a fucking battle right like the cancer is going to win and it doesn't mean that the person is weak or anything it's just like matter of fact and that's every book i think of in that way the unlikable others is that, that like, it's not that they deserve to die. It's that Joe has decided and is built to live and survive and surviving does not make someone a good person always.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I also get so annoyed when I read so-and-so lost the battle with cancer (laughs) and it makes them sound like they didn't fight hard enough or weren't, equipped enough for it. So I a hundred percent agree with you there.
5: Yeah. And also as if everyone has access to the same care, like a million reasons. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. But also what you've done though, in terms of Joe is that you've made him vulnerable in certain ways. And he's, he's very sensitive because if he came out fresh out the gate, like, woohoo, I'm a psychopath. I have zero empathy at all, all of these things, I have zero vulnerability, the reader would have 100% have been put off. But you give him this backstory that is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking what he went through. And so we are more inclined to get on board with the character who is so freaking deeply flawed and terrifying, but also very vulnerable at times as well.
5: I love that sensitivity. And that's what was exciting. It's in every book. I love thinking about that and bringing the reader into that and hoping that it works. And for me, like it goes hand in hand with that vulnerability in the sense that, oh, to be like, we think of a sensitive man as the dream man, but what does, what, what made them that way? And sensitivity is also a tool and a rationalization. Like, and I like the way it flips where, On the one hand, that sensitivity is great because like he does feel for these women that he loves and he does defend them. And like you said, we're agreeing with him, but that sensitivity ultimately, like his skin is going to come first, even as he tells you that it's the woman who matters. And I like that because that's where I feel like that's his like lack of awareness, self awareness there, where he's so self-aware until it comes time to acknowledge that he has skin in the game. And that no matter, like, that this woman's, as long as she's making him happy and sensitive to his sensitivities, and, yeah, because I guess it's that young part of me that was, like, with John Cusack and Say Anything, what if she really didn't like him? Like, what if it was like that? (laughs) Like, what then? And what would he do?
0: Yeah. The stories that drive me insane in terms of rom-coms is the, oh, he finally wore her down. In the beginning, she really didn't like him. But after this long, after he pursued her and pursued her and wouldn't take no for an answer, he finally won her over. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're encouraging stalking. We're encouraging men who don't understand boundaries, who've watched all these rom-coms and have said, yeah. oh, well, if I just keep ignoring her, no, I will eventually wear her down. Um, and that kind of romantic trope drives me insane.
5: Oh, yeah. And that's over the years I've heard from so many people who have dealt with domestic violence, like, in that way of saying thank you. Like, you've shown, like, this is where, like, yeah, like, we've been programmed to say, like, on the one hand, we're like, no means no. On the other hand, what's more romantic than a man who won't take no for an answer? And that, to me, is where every, almost every book comes from of, like,
0: yeah, because it's, it's, you
5: understand where, why they think that way and why we think that way. And that's scary. Like, yeah very scary.
0: We've come to the end of our time, Caroline. I don't know how I have a gazillion more questions, oh, but 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 we're, we've come to the end of our time. We will hopefully get you back for the next one. For our listeners, run, 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 get this book. It is absolutely phenomenal. And I don't want to give anything away, but I feel like Joe's kind of met his match somewhere. Read it and, and you will find it out. Thank you so much, Caroline. Thank you, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup